Coming up on Omnivore, forecasting flavor trends, the decline of disruptive innovation, and coaching food entrepreneurs in sub-Saharan Africa. It's episode 21 of Omnivore from the editors of Food Technology Magazine and the Institute of Food Technologists. This episode of Omnivore is brought to you by IFT's new Product Development Bootcamp, a comprehensive 10-module online course designed to equip food and beverage professionals with the knowledge and skills necessary to elevate and accelerate product development. Learn more at ift.org bootcamp. Welcome to Omnivore from IFT and Food Technology, where we explore the intersection of business, science, and technology in the global food system. I'm Bill McDowell. Every year, food technology editors canvas a range of food industry experts and trend watchers to find out what's on the horizon in the coming year. This year's trends include florals, nostalgic mashups, and an abundance of cross-cultural cuisines. But what's driving these trends? Food Technologies Deputy Managing Editor Kelly Hensel chatted with Kerry Group's Global Director of Consumer Research and Insights, Samia Nair, about the core drivers pushing consumer flavor preferences. You mentioned in the article this third culture cuisine. And I was so fascinated Mm -hmm. by it, just the idea of this coming out of the pandemic, consumers looking to be more adventurous, seeking out new taste combinations. And I was hoping you could talk a little bit more about that. The third culture, you know, cuisine is trying to get a sense of not just comfort, because I always want to try out, you know, adventure still has to come from a place of safety and comfort. I will go back um, a couple of years. You must have heard fusion foods rising, right? Monster mashups, fusion foods, unlikely unconventional combinations. We ourselves have spoken about it about five years ago and, and, and even more so. That in today's context, when you're putting in adventure, you're putting in novelty and trying to kind of indulge in something that is just unconventional, not experienced before. That's manifesting today as third culture cuisine. Why is that happening? Is because no longer are people just accepting of fusion food. Even if you start off from food service and what chefs are doing, I think there's the sense of pride of cultures, the sense of deference and respect that's being paid back to those specific cultures and diverse like influences of ingredients that can no longer be called fusion. In many senses, fusion is often considered today as a flat derivative, right? So we've talked about how there's a lot more immigration, there's a lot more ethnic influences, people are traveling a lot more. And from there rises this sense of bold curiosity, trying to share not just the culture that I belong to, but also wanting to experience cultures that you probably have lived in. And that's where chefs, for instance, are um, creating things like, gosh, uh, kimchi on a pizza, right? And they're not doing this out of a flat sense of just fusing foods and ingredients, but they're doing it to play pay homage to two different cultures and trying to showcase the best of both worlds. 
I think there is just a lot more sense of belonging to not just the food, but also to the story that goes behind it. And that's what third culture cuisine is. It, it, it's so interesting because it hits upon so many of the, I mean, obviously all of these trends kind of play together, right? And 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 spin mm-hmm. off of one another. And another thing that's kind of resonating, it seems, is obviously this health and wellness kind of driver since yes. the pandemic, especially. And, and we saw that kind of play out in uh, some floral trends coming for flavor trends coming forward in 2024. Um, mm-hmm. I think another one was like botanicals obviously is, have been around for a while and are still playing out. Do you have any thoughts on, on that trend in particular? I don't want to talk just about health and wellness. Of course, health and wellness is important, whether it was pre pandemic during the pandemic or post post that. Yes. We spent more time had more time during the pandemic to look at our priorities and see what we are doing with life. In this new sense of normal, there's the desire for more empowering food and beverages. Empower my sense of wanting plant-based foods. Empower my understanding of wanting more of a balanced diet empower my understanding of food for the body mind and soul right like at the heart of it we always talk about the body mind and soul and that 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 triangle that's where we live within that health and wellness realm is looking at empowering needs people are making want to make those decisions for themselves and they are seeking out food and beverages that can empower that sense so i don't want to talk about just people want to think about health and wellness Yes, that's the root. But today they want to be empowered to make that decision. You know, like botanicals, you mentioned, it's such a big part of health and wellness today, whether it's proactive health or reactive health. Um, it's that sense is like, ah, I may not care for elderberry and elderflower. Maybe I didn't like the idea of the flavor of it. Fine. I'm being empowered by so many other ingredients that will provide me with that solution. So it's, how can I say, a behavioral angle to health and wellness that goes just, it's not about the outcome as much. It's also about the journey that they take through it. Nostalgia has been around. Nostalgic flavors, mashups, if you will, have been around for a while. How do you see that evolving? Like, what is that next kind of iteration? You know, nostalgia lives in the sense of comfort and safety, yes. But nostalgia squarely sits in the sense of like, I know, I'm familiar with this. I, you know, there's a sense of craving because you have memories associated with nostalgia. I will say now people are going to continue to have s'mores, right? S'mores yesterday, s'mores today, s'mores tomorrow, Cheetos (laughs) yesterday, Cheetos today, Cheetos tomorrow, yes? (laughs) Yeah. But now they are willing willing to make that step further where you know it's almost um sacrosanct right that sense is like nostalgia flavors like don't touch it don't mess with my nostalgia flavors that will continue yes but people are also a lot more open to be like ah i'll introduce one ingredient and see if that works like i love mac and cheese do not touch my yellow mac and cheese that's creamy and I'll just like you know don't touch it but now people are a little more curious to say hmm this is my comfort let me see if i can actually put in a hatch chili in there mm-hmm. or let me see if i could you know put in some sriracha in there yeah you know um nostalgia and we've talked about 
adventure, uh, consumers seeking out adventure in terms of flavor trends. Um, those are two drivers for the flavor trends we identified for 2024. But I know Carrie has also identified some other drivers. I think there are seven root drivers in total that you guys have identified for consumer behavior. And I was uh, hoping you could take us through those really quickly so that we can think about them in terms of the flavor trends and other trends, other other food and beverage trends moving forward in the new year. These drivers are what influences people's food choices. So you have one, which is adventure novelty that we spoke about. Mm -hmm. Two, which is indulgence and premium that gives rise to kind of the brave new world of flavors and still trying to experience things that are, you know, purely indulgent. You have comfort and nostalgia that has that sense of safety and security, familiarity. That is health and wellness. Then you have authenticity, originality. So that sense of authentic adjacent. So that third culture cuisine is authentic adjacent right like adjacent to authenticity because it has two different walls uh blending or maybe three sometimes and the final piece is sustainability yeah all of these will continue to be key motivators for consumers it's how it manifests into trends and tastes that are influencing them that'll change every year but at the heart of it we are always tracking what the root motivators are to consumers Samia Nair is Global Director of Consumer Research and Insights for Kerry Group, a leading flavor and nutrition ingredients manufacturer. Learn about the flavors that will drive product development in 2024 and beyond in the October issue of Food Technology. We'll be back with more Omnivore in a moment, but first, this word from our sponsor. Introducing IFT's Product Development Bootcamp, a comprehensive 10-module online course designed to equip food and beverage professionals with the knowledge and skills necessary to elevate and accelerate product development. Whether you're new to product development or need a refresh on the basics, IFT's Product Development Bootcamp offers a wealth of valuable insights, practical strategies, and real-world examples to take your product development to the next level. Learn more at ift.org slash bootcamp. Welcome back to Omnivore. I'm Bill McDowell. Disruption. Has there been a bigger buzzword in the food community for the past decade? Well, Rabobank's senior consumer foods analyst, Tom Bailey, says the age of disruption is over, at least for now. What's more, he says, some of the recent food and beverage disruptions haven't really been all that industry watchers and investors had been hoping for. Bailey shares his take on what innovation will look like in the years ahead in this conversation with Food Technologies' Mary Ellen Kuhn. Well, welcome to the Omnivore Podcast, Tom. In a recent report you wrote, you asked the question, is the age of food disruption over? And I'd say that based on your report, your answer is yes, at least for now. Is that an accurate take on your perspective? And could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. So based on the insights and patterns that we we looked at, it seems that you know there was clearly a frenzied era of disruption in, in food. And it's taking, taking a breather, uh, is, is safe to say. Uh, the past decade 
We saw a surge of these disruptive innovations. All you have to do is go to Expo West and you'll see a lot of cool, exciting, new disruptive products. Recently, we've definitely seen a, a recalibration towards incremental innovation. Um, and it stems from changes to all of these tailwinds we saw driving disruptive innovation, um, you know, from a, a shift in the supply chain, just getting, just securing products of, for packaging or ingredients for flavors. That, that has all changed. Um, and it still remains a challenge for a lot of companies. So that's, you know, a very basic aspect that is, has shifted. But we've also seen a change in the consumer behavior. So consumers are a little more choosy about what they want to buy and they're, they're penny pinching a bit more given the, the financial environment. Um, so we've seen a change in that. And also I think that we've, we've learned, and we'll probably talk more about it, um, their appetite for some of these products. Um, but the financial markets also, and I think that this is an important one, the financial markets have shifted. So a higher interest rate is going to change the way that a lot of these startups are, value, are, are valued from an um, investment standpoint. And that, that changes the appetite also. But I think it's important, and I'll just leave it at, at this, uh, to underline that while the intensity has dampened a little bit, disruptive innovation is by no means extinct. It's just taking a backseat for the time being. Well, that's a good point. And maybe we could talk a little bit more about what that means, because I did have a question about innovation. As things change, what are you forecasting for innovation in the, in the food and beverage industry? So I think we're, we're already seeing it by and large. We're, you know, the, the innovation is shifting to very pragmatic, consumer-led products being being developed. So basic, basic in incremental innovations. So we're talking flavor changes or, or slight format changes or packaging changes and things of that nature. So, you know, cheese it's have a puffed cheese it which would be an incremental, you know, innovation that's much more simple for the consumer to grasp from a new product standpoint. But we've also seen, you know, some of the big names specifically calling out a purposeful shift towards incremental innovation. And that would be, you know, McDonald's has said that, that they're going to focus on their, their core menu and their core successful products. And that's going to be focusing on quality of the burgers. So juicier, more flavorful, traditional Big Macs. They're going to also do a chicken Big Mac. But we also seen Chobani shift and, and call out specifically, they're going to be looking at um, incremental innovations after massive, you know, prolific category expansion, um, bring it back to the to the core products that they do well and look at how they can build upon those that align with the consumer. Well, I wanted to ask you if the age of disruption has, has ended or, or tailed off a bit for now, is there a defining word for the food and beverage market for the next decade? Yeah, I, that's, a, that's a, a good question. I, I should have probably used this word in the report, but I think the defining word would be refinement. So the next decade, we're going to see you know, the, the brands refining their offerings, which I've kind of just talked about a little bit, um, focusing on improving those flavors, textures, and, and those points. Also, personalization of products and, and flavors, I think, is going to be interesting for consumer brands, for restaurants and foods, quick service restaurants specifically. I think that that personalization means a lot to, to today's consumer, particularly millennials and Gen Z. They love that personalized story. Well, I just ask you to look forward. So if I could take you back and just ask you about the past decade, what disruptive product or product category would you say has been the most overrated? 
Yeah, that's an easy one. I feel bad picking on them so much, but I think that the alternative meets really I personally I wanted to see them succeed. I wanted to love it. I wanted it to take off, but it just, you know, frankly, up front, it didn't taste great. But to give it some credit, they did shift and create a novel way of thinking about protein sources and sustainability specifically. But I think that it it really created a significant amount of hype and overinvestment that just outpaced the adoption rates from consumers themselves. Contrast that with alternative milks. Uh, which I think that the alternative meats assume they would have a similar sort of adoption rate with the consumers where alternative milks are up, up to 20% of the total milk category now was a quiet winner. They, they are loud now. You know, you have the Oatly ads coming out and being quite antagonistic towards the dairy industry now. Um, but they've already got a strong foothold in the traditional milk category. So they've kind of got room to, to, to make those claims. They, they can back them up by their presence in the category. Alternative meats, just they, they don't have that yet. They didn't catch on um, and they, they came in screaming and it was, almost, it was almost an over oversell, under deliver story versus milks, which were undersell. Yeah, I guess that whole idea of over promise and under deliver is never a good thing. Yeah, that's tricky. Well, you mentioned the alternative milk products. Are there any other products that have kind of emerged in the past decade or so that you do find impressive? Yeah, so there, there there's a lot kind of on the fringe of would be disruptive. You know, some of the products that I that I do like were some of the fermented foods, especially you know products like kombucha, kefir. You know, these were these are twist. They are somewhat disruptive to traditional beverage category and traditional uh, drinkable yogurt category, but they bring together that unique blend of taste, the health side of things, and traditional food practices. On the lines of truly disruptive to food, I'd say precision fermentation specifically is it hasn't done very well you know, to date. They've raised a lot of money. They haven't had any big wins with a specific branded product or integration as an ingredient into big, big food brands specifically. But I do think that they're going to have a place in the supply chain. And I, I do think that, you know, products like infant formula, for example, there's, there's a big need for some of these very specific ingredients that aren't found in nature outside of the human that we've been trying to replicate through, you know, through manufacturing processes that precision fermentation can nail. And it's, it's, it belongs in there. I think that we're going to see precision fermentation come out and actually be do very well. Interesting. So I wanted to go back to something you touched on as, as we started in the whole access to venture capital. I think everyone agrees that there's going to be less of it. So what kind of investment opportunities will venture capitalists be seeking out in this time period? That's ah, a, a very good question. And we we talk about it a lot. You know, I work in a in a bank at the end of the day, um, and there's a lot of discussion around where's where's the money going to go, and how how are companies going to be valuing specifically venture capital, which I think is has been driving a lot of the the investment. They're still going to be looking at disruptive innovation. They're they're going to be the stopgap. So what? So let me step back. I think the large corporates got very excited by disruptive innovation. So they, they developed incubators and they were uh, investing a lot towards disruptive products. I think that those incubators and those investments and that focus is, is going to be more 
geared around incremental. I think they're going to leave the disruptive, the higher risk stuff to the venture capital firms, private equity groups, and some of those kind of outsourcing that the disruptive um, investments. So the VC firms, venture capital firms are going to be the stopgap for that disruptive innovation. So they're going to continue to incubate that, but I think they're going to be doing less of it because they don't have, they, they can't take the risks they could over the last decade or so because the cost of money has just gone up. So you have to be very, very careful. You need to be looking, you know, for investments that have very clear value proposition, a, a solid business model, you know, demonstrated market traction already, not just a pie in the sky theory, you know, something that's actually look, that's going to be, you know, demonstrating traction with the consumer in terms of the financial metrics that I think that they'll be looking for. Well, thank you so much, Tom. These are great insights and we're very appreciative of them. Tom Bailey is a senior consumer foods analyst with Rabobank. Learn more about what he's forecasting for the food industry in the October issue of Food Technology. After a successful run in product development and sales roles at food giants like Unilever, Nabisco, Nestle, and Givadon, Donna Rosa found herself at a career crossroads in the late 90s. Some volunteer work and international development evolved into a 20-year career focus that has taken her from Africa to Central America, the Caribbean, and the Middle East. In 2019, Rosa launched E4 Enterprises, which offers online business coaching and education services for entrepreneurs and emerging economies. I recently caught up with her to discuss her work, the challenges and opportunities facing her clients, and what she's learned along the way. Donna, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you so much, Bill. I'm so happy to be here talking to you. In the food technology interview, you discussed the difference between relief and development work. Can you elaborate a bit on the potential you see for food science to contribute to both the immediate relief efforts and long-term development goals? That's such a good question. So what I, ex I explained in, in the interview was that relief is sort of synonymous with humanitarian aid and tends to be more acute, tends to be short-term. It doesn't necessarily have to be, but when there's immediate crisis and then development is just that developing countries, developing economies, it's longer term, it's, you know, more things in place. But in terms of food science, there's a place for food science and processing in both areas. In, in the acute relief aid, the potential is with food that is therapeutic food. So it's called RUTF, ready to use uh, therapeutic, therapeutic food. And this is things like uh, fortified nut pastes and, and milk and powders and things like this. That all takes food science. But actually, the, the larger market, if you will, is in the development. So when you think about how many you know, crisis situations in the world and how, how many countries that need to be developed, that's where I think most of uh, our potential is. And this is enabling food processing in all the, all the little companies and all the countries around the world that need help with food science, you know, because they don't, they don't have this. 
How much do you think that perceptions around food processing itself need to be changed among these international aid organizations and even in the local communities that that need it? What what are the myths that are out there that need to be busted? Yeah, um, the word processing is kind of a loaded word. And I'm going to echo something that came up in a IFT roundtable that I did a couple of months ago. And what I advocate for is basic processing as a time saver, as, as efficiency. Now, the formulation is another question. And I find that the local communities don't really have a problem with, with processing. They do have a problem with putting unfamiliar ingredients into their food. They just don't like it. And they like their food to be familiar. You know, it, it's not easy to bring a new food in here, you know, that, that, that they don't know. They don't like that. And so, you know, if guar gum is native to what it is, then then go ahead and use it. But if it's not something they know, then then formulate it with with ingredients that they're familiar with. So I think it's more of a, a, a explaining this better. In the magazine interview, there's one phrase that you use that really struck me. You refer to the lean season. So can you talk a little bit more about seasonality? and its impact on food security and how food science, to the point of what you're talking about regarding processing, how can it contribute to scalable solutions that alleviate that challenge? First of all, the lean season or the hungry season depends on you know what the, the country is and what they call it, but this is what happens when you're relying on fresh food. Anybody, you know, it's going to go bad or they don't know how to store things they don't have cold storage. They they can't seal things properly. They don't have the packaging available. They don't know how to extend the, the, the shelf life. And so if we can put that into a form where, or even just packaging, you know, properly. So there's lots of things that we can do so that the food will last longer until the next harvest. Now, in terms of scaling, it's almost like we have to scale down before we scale up. And but what I mean is that, you know, all of us in the that are in food science and food technology, we are all familiar with the large scale dryers and, and food engineering and equipment and, and things like this. But the first challenge in developing countries is scaling down to a very small food processor who doesn't have a lot of money and has a very small operation. Then you can scale up. Once you once you have a small, let's say, solar dryers, as an example, that are efficient, that are clean, that that do a good job, then you can scale that elsewhere. You know, and then you take that to another community and another one and then another one. And then as the business grows, then they can scale. So it's entirely possible to scale, but you have to think small first. International aid and development are almost by definition outside in efforts. So how do you ensure that the food development initiatives that you're working on are culturally sensitive and appropriate to the local communities that they're intended to serve? That's just a matter of awareness and getting to know your quote unquote customers or clients before you inflict solutions on them. And so you just have to be culturally aware. You have to learn what people eat and the, what they like, what they don't like, how they eat. You have to take the time to do that before you can 
develop a solution. And I've been on projects where the solution was developed on the outside in a, in a lab, but it was brought to the people first and said, is this something that you would that you would like? It's it's market research. And they'll they'll say, I don't know what this is, or this is like something know we have something similar in our culture. And then you formulate it with local ingredients. So you have to just take the time. There's no other way around it to get to know that local cuisine. So looking ahead, what are the most exciting opportunities or innovations that you foresee have can have the biggest impact on uh, food security? To me, the most exciting thing is just getting the word out and creating the awareness of what food ser- uh, food science can do. That's the first step. You know, that's where we start. How do we how do we make people aware and how do we make it so that Another important point is that food scientists and all scientists tend to like to take the technology out to where where could it go? And we need to restrain ourselves and keep it very simple and very low tech. In food science, in product development, we have a lot of control over the product and the rheology and the texture and the you know the the sensory qualities. And I think we have to, you know, take a step back and say, let's work with what we have. Based on your experience, what do you think are the biggest areas of need or biggest areas of opportunity? Is it food safety? Is it supply chain? Is it food waste? Where where are the areas where you think systemically we can make the most impact? I would say a couple of areas. Improved nutrition, you know, formulating for nutrition, Food safety is really, really important. I would say those two things, and the third would be value addition. So help these economies add value to their products because right now a lot of them are commodity-based. And a commodity-based system doesn't make a lot. You'll never make a lot of money at that. You have to learn how to add value. And um, I think that's an, an important contribution. Uh, for food science. And, you know, that entails a lot of things. It entails food engineering and development and and all kinds of, uh, I would say almost all the food science disciplines could be applied. I know one of the big priorities for you is creating more space for young professionals, for students to get involved in this. What's missing and what do we need to be doing as a community to encourage more engagement around this topic? You know, young people now, they don't just want a paycheck. They want their work to mean something. And a lot would jump at this. And so the first thing that we need to do is create that awareness so that it gets, food science gets to be a component of projects. And once the jobs are created, once the need is created, I think that we're going to have plenty of people to fill those, those positions. The other thing that that's needed is creativity and the person has to be creative. And I think there's a self-selection involved in this, in this area. And we need curricula too. You know, once we have the the job demand, then we need specialized curricula to teach these young food scientists, how you do it in a low resource poor environment. You're not going to be able to use an HPLC. 
you know, how do you measure the moisture? How do you prevent aflatoxins when there, you, you have very little to work with? That's where the creativity comes in. And that's specialized training. Donna Rosa is founder and chief entrepreneurship officer of E4 Enterprises, which offers consulting and educational support for entrepreneurs in developing nations. She is also the 2023 recipient of IFT's Humanitarian Award for Service to the Science of Food in honor of Elizabeth Fleming Steer. This episode of Omnivore has been sponsored by IFT's new Product Development Bootcamp a comprehensive 10-module online course designed to equip food and beverage professionals with the knowledge and skills necessary to elevate and accelerate product development. Learn more at ift.org bootcamp. And that wraps up this episode of Omnivore. Thanks again to all our guests and my colleagues at Food Technology. Omnivore is produced and distributed by the Institute of Food Technologists, if you enjoyed today's show and want to learn more about Food Technology Magazine or how to join the conversation by becoming an IFT member, visit ift.org membership. For more in-depth discussion about innovation in the science of food, check out IFT's other podcast, SciDish, on the news and publications page of ift.org. If you have comments or suggestions for future shows, just send us an email. The address is editors at ift.org. For the entire team at Food Technology and IFT, I'm Bill McDowell. Thanks for listening, and join us again for our next episode. This is Omnivore.